0: Merry Christmas, everyone. I thank you for joining us this week, this week before Christmas, as we continue our series in the book of Colossians. Who likes the uncomfortable? Do you enjoy awkward pauses? Approaching subjects that create a reaction? Ever enjoy watching someone cringe as a particular topic is brought up? Ever been to a gathering of friends where that one guy in the family who has personal views that aren't necessarily popular, but he doesn't seem to care, likes to share them boldly and without apology? He doesn't really read the room and it becomes something you think about or talk about afterwards on the drive home? Well then, you've come to the right sermon, but only if you listen to things without context in mind. Please don't do that. Because what we will approach today becomes one of those passages where we either turn a blind eye to it because we don't like people's shallow interpretation or because we only read the headline that is written to shock rather than read the story, which has far greater depth and importance than we first realize. Today, we're tackling submission. And boy, oh boy, can I imagine many of you tensing up as I talk about submission today. Submission regarding wives? children and slaves, but also husbands, fathers, and masters who have a duty to submit to the Lord. People are called to submit, to humble. And, and as God calls us to submit, this is to humble us, to reveal in us our rebellion and to make clear that God is not one who we pick and choose to serve, but when he redeems us, he owns us. Oh, but please bear with me. Because this is really, really good news to hear. And hopefully you'll understand that by the end of this passage. So here we go, verse 18 of Colossians chapter three. Here's what it says. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as it is fitting to the Lord. As Ruth pointed out last week, we saw in verse 4 that there was this transition in the book of Colossians that went from doctrine specifically to application. And if we just read, wives, submit to your husbands as it is fitting to the Lord, without remembering anything we've studied before this or jumping into this passage without reading the beginning, we are like that annoying friend who jumps into a movie halfway through, he starts to watch it with us, and then asks every possible question to catch them up. Don't be that guy when we come to this passage. But what has Paul been talking about through the book of Colossians? He's been addressing the false teaching that's been seeping into Colossae, uh, things from Gnosticism to syncretism that has lowered Jesus' supremacy and made Jesus to be just a human or an angel, and then we misdirect our worship to the living God and rather worship created things that are not in line with the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why for over two chapters, Paul has addressed how important Jesus is. He has made clear what a big deal Christ is and how those of us who have received Jesus, have received Christ, are found in Christ. We are superimposed by him. We are hidden with and behind him. When God looks at us, he sees his son. And when Paul states these applications, he is stating what Jesus does, what the Holy Spirit empowers, and how God gets glory his way, the way we can love God as he has told us to. And coming out of the passage that we studied last week, what it looks like when our eyes are fixed on things above. Because we stop looking just for our rights and we start looking for how God can get praise, how the dead can hear the message of the way, the truth, and the life. We look at our lives as living sacrifices that no longer make us the point, but in word and deed show off that Jesus is and will always be the point. So how can wives submit to your husbands as it is fitting to the Lord show any of this off? This isn't about deserving. Jesus didn't deserve to be put to death. He could have lit up the Roman Empire, but chose not to. It's not about if your husband deserves your respect and submission. This is about God getting glory because you, daughter, child of God, you submit to your husband as a reflection of your willingness to submit to the Lord. And through your submission— God might just use your humble spirit to open the eyes of your husband who doesn't yet know the God that you worship. But, but, but what if he does know the Lord, but it just isn't leading very well, isn't making the correct decisions, is passive in many things? You might think, how could I submit to someone who isn't perfect like my Lord? I think this is an inherent problem that we all deal with, that we all struggle with. Sometimes it's an excuse. Sometimes it's a real dilemma that we need to seek counsel and read the scriptures and allow the Holy Spirit to expose our rebellious heart. But it sounds like an Old Testament problem, and it sounds like a 2020 problem. How do we submit to kings and government and others who aren't doing everything right? Being a leader has a lot of adjectives. Sometimes it can be thrilling. It definitely brings attention upon you, but it also can be lonely and very, very difficult. And I know for myself, I struggle often with making the wrong decision and can become paralyzed to do anything. But often I need to think about where my wife stands as she embraces submitting to me even when she isn't fully confident in my decisions or even my decision-making process. I'm not saying it's easier to submit and let the husbands make all these decisions Because in a healthy marriage, there is conversation, compromise, and a caring for one another's needs and wants. But wives, I believe what Paul, who probably wasn't married, but was empowered by the Holy Spirit as he wrote this, was pointing out was that it is an opportunity for you to show your love and respect for Christ by submitting to your husband as the reflection of your belief that the Lord has got you in his care. And he has got you in his mind. I'm not saying that it's easy, but it is an opportunity for Christ to be glorified as it is fitting to the Lord. Not because of this misogynistic worldview, but because a Christian, all Christians, ought to be and are submissive to what the Lord says if we agree or disagree with what he says. That is one of the things that I know I personally struggle with. I think earlier on in my faith, I wanted to argue with what God said. But now I've kind of gone, if I'm honest, to the other extreme. I want to demonize what others add to what God says. As we pointed out a few weeks ago, Adam probably told Eve not to touch the tree of knowledge because his theory was if she couldn't touch the tree, she couldn't eat from it. Good thinking. But the problem with that... The whole idea of adding to what the Lord actually said, that's religion. That's based on doing good to get to God rather than believing God came to you through the work of his son. And I am so fiercely opposed to added legalism, which I don't think is bad to oppose legalism, but my flesh can stand out in my reaction and my reflection of Christ is poorly portrayed. Imagine being put on trial and the lawyer attempts to discredit you while on the stand And they say something personal about you, out of context, and your defense response may discredit you. That's how I feel I get when I see who ought to know better add to God's law. By making the gospel a message of works rather than grace, I just start to get angry. So I know how we want to read verse 18 without context in mind, but this is, just an applic- this is just an application, an opportunity to reflect Christ and his lordship over your life by exemplifying a posture of submission. So let's continue. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Wait, 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 wait. Some of you may think, why do husbands not have to submit? Well, they do. They submit to the Lord through the action of loving their wives. Wait, but I thought all wives were easy to love. I mean, mine is. But scripture also calls out difficult wives as possibly the most difficult of trials. Let me read what the, the proverb says. In Proverbs 21, verse 19, it's better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone, and to all a good night. Seriously. Another proverb says, chapter 12, verse four, a wife of noble character is her husband's crown, but a disgraceful wife is like decay in his bones. Dang, there's more, but I'm gonna leave it at that because I think you get the point. The point is that marriage isn't always rose petals and chocolate strawberries. It is difficult and many husbands struggle with loving their wives well as they take for granted what their wives and sometimes mother of their children endure as their wife. So men, your love isn't just this passive acknowledgement of your bride's importance. It is a sacrificial giving up of oneself to protect your wife, to provide for your family, not only necessarily, but also. And to procure a sense of stability for your bride that makes her feel comforted and safe in your marriage. A love that is like what the Hebrews call of love, ahava. Which means in our culture, that no matter how crazy things get, no matter how difficult times get, I am not going anywhere because I'm committed to you, I love you, and I'm for you. Husbands, we ought to have an ahava love for our wives. And Paul also says, do not be harsh with them. Do not take away their sense of security because we men, we're reactionary and either dismissive and quick to shut down or emotionally charged and say things that we shouldn't. That's what loving our wives looks like, according to the, the words of Paul. And these words that Paul shares about these households are because our first ministry as husbands starts at home. And this is difficult and impossible without the Holy Spirit leading us and us submitting to what he says in his word. And that is why he begins with the married couple and then transitions to children. Here's what it says in verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Did you hear that, Reagan? Lorelei? Evie? Boston? No, probably not, because you're too busy talking over what I'm saying in the video. Listen, I know this seems impossible, and even making this verse one that we would use to attempt to get our kids to obey us, that's not the point. The point is that children, dependents, ought to have a disposition of submission to their parents as their parents love them and they practice submission to Christ themselves. A very high expectation of children throughout the ages is that they would be well behaved. But often, if we're honest, that's translated more to mean, don't embarrass us as your parents. When a child's submission ought to be taught, not based on reward and risk, but out of a humble understanding of the Lord's responsibility and authority handed to a parent. Now, as a parent, I've always been taught that consistency is key, and I believe that it's absolutely helpful to not allow our children to slide on things, to tell them no. And yes, I tell my children no all the time because it's ridiculous to think that telling a child no is a bad idea, but to not hand out any punishment in case they do not obey is also ridiculous and is teaching them that their actions don't have consequences, which is unrealistic in the real world. But the word says, train them up in the Lord as the proverb tells us. In Proverbs 22, verse 6, start children off in the way they should go. And even when they are old, they will not turn from it. This is not a foolproof way of guaranteeing that your children will become Christians or they will never run from Christianity in which their parents preach. This has more to do with instilling in them reverence for the Lord. And his commands, and the love for God who first loved them. We ought to gospelize our children, church. And many of us, if we know it or not, have possibly and probably instilled in our children the opposite of what the gospel means without actually meaning to do this. Let me explain. A risk and reward system of you getting something if you're good and you lose something if you're bad may inadvertently have taught all of us since childhood, that the gospel of grace is works-based rather than love-based. My kids have made mistakes. And you know what? Most of the time, they've learned from those mistakes, as have I as their parent and protector of their lives. So children, I'd encourage you to listen to and apply what your parents tell you to do, not because they're perfect, but because the God that they worship is. And they have been handed the huge responsibility of caring for your souls. And some of you parents are like, look, obey. The Lord says, and even pastors said that you should obey. (sighs) Paul's going to come for you now, parents. Here's what he says in verse 21. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Fathers, parents, those in charge of your children, but fathers in particular, do not embitter, do not provoke, do not exasperate your children as they become discouraged more and more discouraged, they may lack courage, they may become afraid to follow the Lord through our examples of discouraging them in what and how they do things. On the one hand, I'm terrible at this. I provoke and in my laziness, I discipline my children not out of love, but out of exhaustion. But on the other hand, the Lord has very gently reminded me that I have been provided so much grace that I can afford to hand some to my children when appropriate not because I'm afraid of punishing them for their transgressions, but as an opportunity to point them to grace that's offered in Jesus Christ. There have been times where my kids have messed up, and not just a little, but royally. And I've been reminded of the gospel in that moment and taken them to their favorite place to eat to discuss with them discipline and the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So fathers, parents, guardians, equip your children with the gospel. Remember that often the way your children may view God and his discipline will be directly caused by the way you parent your children. To be angry and forceful hurts their understanding of God, while being too lenient and passive also teaches them something false about your God as well. Verse 22, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. All right, if you haven't been offended yet by reading the Bible without context in mind, here's another chance. Slaves, what? It's easy if we look at this passage to soften it and say things like, well, it wasn't slavery like what you imagine, or it was only bond servants that really translate closer to what today we know as employees. And you may have heard both of those things before, but I don't want to soften this. I want to talk about the point of which is being made in this passage. Christians, your obedience to an earthly authority often, not always, translates to your willingness to trust Christ. Why do I say often, but not always? Because like most things that are controversial, there's some nuance. If earthly authorities require that you go against God's commandments, then that is a nuance. But here's the problem with that. We are so subjective in our thinking about what is against God's commandments and what isn't. We, like so many people throughout history, build our arguments on misinformation or limited information because once we hear what we want, we close our ears. La, 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 la. We close our minds and we shut our eyes to anything else. And on top of ignorance or misinformation, we are so quick to want to be right. We want to conform scripture to make sense in our context rather than getting into the context in which something was written in the passage. Is slavery what God wants for his creation? No. We see him pulling people out of slavery in Egypt, but most importantly, because of Christ, he pulls us out of slavery in which we were in under our sin. But authority of others above someone is part of God's plan. Not so we will feel less than, but so that we can exercise submission as unto the Lord. Christ modeled it when he gave up his eternal comforts to walk among his creation, to live amongst us, even though we disowned him, he laid down his rights and he had this as the second person of the Trinity so that you and I could have life offered to us in Jesus Christ, in his life, his death, and his resurrection. So slaves, bond servants, employees, Those under others' authorities live as if Jesus is with you, which the Bible says he is, and not only when others are looking, because that actually may expose that you really don't believe the Holy Spirit resides in you, or that your faith is anything more than something for others to see and be impressed by. So Christian, child of God, dearly loved child of God, work hard. With sincerity of heart, when someone is looking, when no one is looking, as it pleases the Lord. See, your commitment to be diligent if any or no one notices is what Paul is pointing out because the character that the Holy Spirit produces in one that is seen by God, no matter who is around to observe it, because God is. This is an example of reverence for God. Because you know that he is always with you, always involved in your life. And you actually believe that because you live this way, no matter if other individuals can see it or not, you are worshiping God by working diligently. Verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. If we can stop viewing this through the lens of slavery as we know it during the Civil War, And understand that bondservants that were indebted to their masters or employees or bosses or however you need to hear it so you can understand the point. I listened to one of my favorite preachers of mine teach this passage. And not once did he actually talk about the point of the passage. Paul wasn't giving application regarding slavery. He was giving application to Christians, no matter their responsibility, to work unto the Lord because he truly is their and our master. And as servants of the Lord, which each of us ought to be proud to be, we work with all our hearts, with motives that are bringing glory to God in our, prof- in our professions, in our allotment in life, in our trials, and even in our mountaintop experiences. They all are opportunities for us to point to Jesus. Some are easier to do. And some, if people know our circumstances, are more impactful for them to see our willingness to work with all our hearts unto the Lord. So let me ask you this, Christian. Are you working at school or your job or in your home as, your living, as a living sacrifice unto the Lord? Or are you disregarding what the Lord points out here because of some internal excuse you've made up to justify yourself? Verse 24. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. This redeems everything that I do. No matter how minute or insignificant, I know that when I pick up trash around the church campus, or I sit down and listen to my son describe Minecraft to me, or I spend time studying and practicing a sermon for you as a community to hear, and I hope know just a little bit more about the God whom I serve, I can know it is not in vain or without a hint of worship to my God, who is always there, always involved in my life. And he may be the only one who sees me do something, but that's enough because he is the only one that I worship. And I, you, we receive a reward. And I know some of us see this and we think, sweet, I'm getting a penthouse in heaven, or I'm definitely driving a Bentley on roads of gold. But I'd contend that's not what this is talking about at all. It's the inheritance of the son and daughtership through and because of our adoption that our record is made clear. It's made clean. It's spotless because of Jesus, and that we have that to look forward to as Christians. I think many of us take for granted a lot of things, but nothing more than our inheritance and salvation gifted to us in Jesus Christ. And some of you might right now, when I said that, be thinking, well, what do you mean, Pastor? I watch the playlist sometimes when I feel like it. I go on the Zoom call to see who else is on there. I watch all the videos, even the ones that don't apply to me. (laughs) That doesn't mean anything. What, what What salvation means is that we are found not guilty, even though there is an unbelievable amount of evidence that should find us guilty. And yet God in His grace and His goodness has saved us from an eternity without Him and saved us too an eternity and life that are for Him. We're trophies of grace, being refined and conformed more into the image of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! So, we don't need to attempt to find our satisfaction in things of this world. We don't need to act as if our rights and liberties are more important than God's glory and gospel being proclaimed. I want to have, as Ruth taught last week, eyes that are fixed upwards. That when my neighbor bothers me, or the news I read infuriates me, or the person that I've invested in for years of my life lets me down, I can stop and say, God, What are you teaching me about you right now? Am I annoying your people by my arrogance? Am I giving people who you are yet to draw to yourself an excuse to not hear about the God I claim I love because I act as if I am the God in whom I love? Lord, do I read the news and look at selfishness, which abounds, and think, Lord, I am so selfish. I would rather cast judgment on someone than love them in spite of their sin like you do. Lord, is that person that I invested in, that I answered their questions for years in the middle of the night sometimes, I counseled through some really hard stuff, who claimed that they loved you but have walked away from you, is that a warning to me? Could my eyes not be focused on the right thing and be focused on the wrong thing as well? Oh Lord, please search my heart and give me grace. This passage that we are studying is about submission practically and glory vertically. But it can also be about perspective horizontally. As we realize that what we do, how we act, how we respond, what we say, what we don't say, can all point people towards or away from our God. And I think at least for me, and so I assume probably for many of you, we have lost our sense of care for others because we're just trying to get by or get through or get over this pandemic. But church, church of the living God, we have the opportunity to make much of Jesus in a whole bunch of different ways, in person, online, through technology, at the grocery store, through social media, on a walk, in our household, on a plane, in our cars. It doesn't matter where you are because there you are to serve Jesus because he's my master. He's the master of the universe. He's the king and we are his subjects and we don't, And please don't get it twisted like a spoiled brat. What God says is what the Christian obeys because we love him because he first loved us. And I don't want you to ever think that preaching the gospel isn't what we do at Church of the Valley. So if God speaks through his servant Paul and says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Kids, obey your parents. Fathers, don't embitter your children. Slaves, work as unto the Lord. Masters, treat your servants fairly. All of that is not a rights issue or a hierarchy issue or even a religious issue. It is a gospel issue. Because if the gospel really isn't about me, If I really didn't do anything to earn my salvation, if God gifted me my circumstance, no matter how good or how dismal they are, they are to grow and perfect me, then all praise be to God in the highest because God is at work. And all I need to focus on in doing what he says for his glory and his gospel until he calls me home is to obey. That's my responsibility. Verse 25 anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism. This without knowing what Paul says next may seem a little strange, but as he's going to give some specific guidelines to masters or employees or those who have authority over others, it starts to make a little more sense. God repays evil. We will all give an account. And even though you and I have amnesty in Jesus Christ, what we do evidence what we truly believe. So if our actions continue to be inconsistent with the Lord that we claim that we follow, if we are too prideful to ever self-assess ourselves, if we have never wondered, why would God save a wretch like me? Then you might be a redneck. Oh, sorry, different different sermon. No, you might be lacking the most important gift who could ever reside in you in the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. See, the person without the Holy Spirit has not received grace that has been given by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God doesn't show favoritism or allow our constant sin to go unpunished, but gifts us the person of the Holy Spirit to change our minds, to change our hearts, to change our actions more into uniformity with God's Son. Our good doesn't outweigh our bad as a Christian. Our God outweighs our sin in the person and work of his Son. So chapter four, verse one, he says, masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know also that you have a master in heaven. Okay, now the last verse kind of makes a little bit more sense, at least to me. That God will repay someone's wrongdoing and even those who are masters or authorities must remember who their authority is. Because the treating of those who are under our debt or responsibility or authority need to be treated fairly and with respect as we give an account for how we have wielded our authority. I want to get practical in the everyday life of what many of you probably don't see. You see the fruit or the work, but maybe you miss out on the actual real-life reality of what it's been like as a staff at Church of the Valley for these past nine months in a pandemic. Guess what? It's been hard. It's been hard to do ministry one way for so many years in person, where most of us have done this ministry in person and in groups and in gatherings, and much of that has either had to get way smaller or cease for a season. And I know this has been hard on many of you, but what you might not have heard is the taxing nature of this past year on your staff at COV. This isn't anyone's fault. So we decided as leaders and elders that no one should have to lose their jobs or get their pay docked as we have navigated these very unknown waters. In fact, by God's grace, we even brought on a staff member in Keith this past year that even though he was a contractor, he was involved in every staff meeting and for a season was probably the person that I saw outside of my household the most as he handled almost every recording of every sermon since we went online in late March. But I know for those of us who are not only used to, but find a ton of joy in worshiping with other people, this has been especially difficult. And for those of us who have bigger families in their homes, it's possibly been a much different experience for those who do not. Barbara, who has played the organ and piano at Church of the Valley for 67 years, who plays week in and week out, maybe has only climbed the stairs up to the choir loft twice since March. Karen Miller, who is our community group and discipleship director, who, in my opinion, moonlights as a middle school math teacher as well, has invested in her students in Cupertino while investing in all of us through community groups, teaching, and training. Aaron Riley, our children's director, not only has had to navigate being pregnant these past five, six months, but also a big move to a new house in Santa Clara while attempting to find ways to equip parents and children in the gospel give them fun crafts and other ways to engage through video even though we're not meeting in person. Malik and Gabe, our interns, have been navigating how to serve while also doing college online at the same time. And there are many other stories with other staff members of what this time has been like, and I'm grateful I don't serve and lead this church alone. But I also know that because I'm the most upfront person on staff, it's easiest to know what I'm going through and even give me credit for stuff that would be impossible without our staff. So I want to thank you for your support of this community, your giving of your offering, because it has made it so we could continue to employ our staff and serve the Lord during this incredibly difficult time. I also take heart that the reality in the fact that I will give an account for not only the participants at Church of the Valley, but the staff, the leaders, and the elders as well. Because even though we partner in serving, we and they are all part of the community of COV that collectively brings glory to God. So I have a request for you, COV. If you've been particularly blessed this year by someone on staff, I want you to tell them how that changed you, how that affected you, how that blessed you before this year ends. Now, I know them. I know our staff. They're going to point it to Jesus as the reason, but that doesn't mean you can't let your voice be heard for being grateful that God used them in your life this year. There's no one in this world that is not under the authority of God, if they acknowledge it or not. They breathe, they have their being, they take their next steps under the will and allowance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And each of us, will give an account. Each of us will stand before God who created the heavens and the earth. And in Philippians 2, Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he says it this way, and being found in appearance as a man, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the Lord that I submit to. That's the one that I listen to. That is the one that I serve. That is the one that I trust. And I don't bow down at the end of my life, then realizing for the first time that the Bible was true all along. But I bow my knee now, professing and proclaiming the gospel of grace can save a sinner like me and can save a sinner like you. So praise God. As this week, we will celebrate the coming of the Messiah. The reason for the season is not about Santa Claus. It's not about Christmas movies, snow, Christmas lights, or even gathering as a family. This season is about Jesus. Because Jesus is the name that is above every name, for in Jesus we are found alive, because Jesus is alive. I want to encourage you, if you are part of Church of the Valley as a family, as a community, that you have the opportunity to give. And so if you'd like to do that, you can go online and you can give at covalley.com or you can mail a check to the church at the end of the years coming up. And so as long as you do that by December 31st, postmarked or online, you will get a taxable credit for it this year. But if you are a part of this community and you feel like God is growing you and you are engaging and you uh, love to see the gospel preached every week and men and women and children be changed by the gospel, we'd encourage you to give as an act of worship. I'm gonna pray for us. And I hope that the rest of this playlist blesses you. I hope that I'll see you on the Zoom call and we'll be able to share your takeaways. And as we head towards the Christmas holiday, man, I pray that this would be one of the years that you just absolutely fall deeper in love with Jesus as the Messiah is being celebrated throughout the world for coming into his creation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this time. And I thank you, Lord, for your word. And I thank you that a very difficult passage can be seen through the lens of the gospel. And I thank you, Lord, that as I communicated it with my um, valuable words, the Lord, I pray that you'd use it in the hearts of those that heard. God, I thank you for Jesus. And I thank you, Lord, that what we do is to make him famous and more known than he was before we started the day. Lord, I pray that you would use any offering that people give and you would use it for the glory of your name and men, women, and children would fall deeply in love with you and want more of you and would live their lives based on you and would point other people to you, God. And so, Father, I just thank you. I thank you for who you are and I thank you for what you're doing in our midst. May you be praised no matter what. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.